0: Today is our last class on the book, The Hindu Way of Awakening. We're doing the last three chapters of this wonderful book. So um, presumably, because you have asked so few questions through this whole cycle, I presume you have none to begin with today. (laughs) But just on the remote chance that you do, I'll ask for it. Okay, No takers. (laughs) All right. The first chapter we're working with, which is chapter 19 of the book, is called Tantra, The Way of Confrontation. This is an extremely important chapter, and Swami spends quite a lot of time dealing with this. Um, I'm not very much in the scene anymore, but I remember in the early years of our spiritual life, in the 70s and the 80s, a little bit into that, when there was so much... um, just sort of wildness to what you would call the American spiritual scene. And people were just grabbing bits and pieces of anything that they could find um, from India, especially things that served egoic purposes. And Swamiji makes reference in there to a particular Indian teacher who came over and taught um, uh, what he called Tantra Yoga and sort of started this whole belief, uh, extremely false belief in the West that there is a path called sense indulgence, that will finally, eventually, give you spiritual transcendence. And uh, Swamiji, he doesn't name the individual in his book, and so I won't either, but Swamiji was absolutely outraged by that man's behavior. He says, if it was a Westerner who made it up, he said, I would give him a little credit, but he was an Indian man and he knew the difference. He did it merely to exploit the potential of Western ignorance. But because, of course as we've discussed earlier, there's always been this um, side to the Indian tradition, which uh, he he talks about in this book, about how the outside, how the, sometimes the Indian temples, uh, let me, the the image of male and female is such a fundamental image of duality that all through a lot of the Indian um, deities and mythological representations in art. There's a, an, often an enormous interplay between the male and the female. And there's even a lot of interplay between the, the sexual attraction between the male and the female to the point of erotic carvings from the Western point of view. And there are temples that are sort of like once they get started in that direction they get sort of more and more enormous in their representation of this as... Uh, is sort of an aspect of life. And it gives the impression to the Western mind, who doesn't have any sophistication on these things, that there is this celebration of eroticism as somehow related to spirituality. And of course since the whole attitude in the West is fundamentally um, guided by Puritanism, where there's this kind of a repudiation of the physical side, it gets very confusing for Westerners to understand that. Earlier In the book, Swamiji talked about how Indian temples are are most ornate on the outside. And the closer and closer you get to the actual center, the simpler and simpler they become. Because it's also a symbolic representation that this world is so diverse and there's so many... um, Maya itself presents us so many choices and so many options and all of these different energies pulling in all these different directions... But the more we go deeper and deeper within, there's this purity and simplicity until we finally simply perceive everything as the light. So to a certain extent, the temples that have um, decided to present themselves in that manner with this plethora of carvings of men and women, primarily on the outside, um, is, is also a symbolic representation that on the outside, this is what appears to be true, But as you get closer and closer in, you don't see those images anymore. What you come to is greater and greater simplicity and finally either a single deity or a stone or a light. And that's where we really are when we're inside with the spirit. It's it's more of a a comprehensive explanation of everything. Well, at the same time also, because the Indian culture is extremely old and because they're less, um, they're more inclined to find the spiritual aspect of every aspect of life instead of sort of cutting off parts of it. The whole uh, Hindu revelation is that, that that God became everything and that everything is a symbolic representation of the divine. So in the ancient scriptures, I mean, all, all sides of life are described. And so there are scriptures that are about, you know, sexuality, about human love and all of these um, ideas are sort of somewhere or another all described. And you have sometimes also, of course, you have erotic images representing divine images. And it's just a question of what door you're going to go through. So there is, in fact, um, a, a practice of Tantra, which is a practice where you endeavor to transcend by experience. Um, Swamiji describes it as a fact and he describes it also as a very very dangerous path because the possibility of transcending is very remote and the possibility of becoming engaged is so great. Plus um, when, you're, when you're trying to test your mettle against delusion like that it's you're your tempting fate. Swamiji said he knew one of only a handful of tantric masters in India, this, this very peculiar Swami that he met once and he told us all about. And he said that man did not, even though he himself had, had, had become a master of that path, he said he did not recommend it to anyone. Sri Ramakrishna described it as saying, yes, you can get into the room by going through the sewer, but a refined person would come in through the front door. <laughs> that was sort of his way Which is, this is not something that we really can hold up as a legitimate uh, way of approaching. And in the West, of course, where um, we're always looking for any excuse for sense indulgence, when the whole, even the whisper of the idea that you could have a spiritual path that was primarily about sexuality, as one of my friends put it, it became like the really, the sort of the the most avant-garde pickup line in the bar, you know? It was like... (laughs) It's just a way of uh, just trying to legitimize that which is just really delusory. And in fact becomes so twisted that it's like the, the very definition of life becomes, you know, the greater and greater pleasure for myself. Now, sort of having just dealt with that a little bit, which Swami deals with in much greater detail there is still, on the other side, there's this other extremely important element of spiritual life that has to be, that needs to be worked with. Otherwise, we don't have all the tools that we need in our spiritual life. And this is what Swamiji talks about at great length in here. And it's a really important thing for all of us to understand. The biggest difficulty that people have on the spiritual path is that even though we become totally persuaded of these extremely elevated ideas, we still have to deal with ourselves. And we're not able to transform all of our impulses merely because we have become enamored of this philosophical idea that it would be a good idea to do it. And so we have all this sort of everyday life that we're having to deal with. One of the greatest difficulties I see on the spiritual path is people don't know what to do. They don't know how to bring their entire being to bear on the spiritual path. So we often find people quite divided up. And I've seen it many times through the years uh, with Ananda, although I have also observed that there's a self-correcting mechanism in place there, which is individuals who are essentially frightened by their own nature frightened by their own impulses or ashamed of their own impulses, will often try to just skip over it all by just becoming spiritual. And so I'll just call myself spiritual and I'll take all the rest of it and I'll just put it off to the side. And because a devotee shouldn't feel this way, I'll I'll announce to myself in the world that I don't feel this way. And then I'll just live over here in this tiny part of myself and I'll just sort of try to make everything work by just living according to these few narrow rules And somehow all the rest of it will gradually take care of itself. Well, there's a partial truth in that, except that if there's an element in it of unwillingness to face what one's own nature really is, if there's any element of fear or shame in it, God can't free you of that until you yourself have been willing to to be honest with him, so to speak, about who and what we really are. So, we have to have some kind of technique, really a powerful technique for dealing with the fact that between our aspirations and our actual ability to live up to them, there's going to be a lot of days and nights in which a lot of things happen to pretty much all of us, unless we're born Jeevan Muktas, and then that's, this is a whole di- discussion, it's not necessary, um, where we're going to be living out a lot of desires And living out lots of failures and living out lots of sort of repeated um, inability to live up to the highest that we can articulate. And unless we have a clear and comfortable and dynamic method for dealing with that, our life on the spiritual path is not going to be happy and is not in the end going to be very fruitful. So this is what Swamiji talks about as... The, the 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 practice of tantra because the practice of tantra fundamentally is that you that you work you develop strength by your, having your energy go one direction and you pull it back in the other direction you 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 put in front of you um you you try to work contrary to the natural flow would be sort of an, a, a a bit of a way to say it this is um <clears throat> The, uh, one of the practices of Tantra that's always been very attractive to me personally is that is the habit of uh, meditating in cremation grounds, for example, where you would be confronted with that which would be somewhat repulsive you know, to a life-affirming nature where you would have to deal with death and you would have to deal with the, the grief and the disintegration and the passing away of this life. And often yogis will deliberately go and sit and meditate in the cremation grounds, you know, and see the bodies burning and remind themselves continuously of the temporary nature of this world. Um, And to be able to embrace um, all the pleasures of this life and never be touched by them. And this is where, of course, the practice becomes a little dangerous because if you are touched by them, then you're taken in. But the idea being that you enjoy food, that you enjoy sensuality, um, that you would enjoy wine or drink, but always maintain this never being touched by actually what's coming into you. This uh, gentleman that Swami knew, who was in fact a, a, a master of Tantra, <clears throat> he was able to drink, I think he did on a dare, he drank um, several bottles of whiskey, just drank them down without ever in any way having any of the alcohol even touch his system. I mean, he could just, he could. He could eat anything and it wouldn't, wouldn't affect him at all. He could eat or drink because his consciousness was so transcended that all of the normal uh, habits of the body, he, he had overcome them all. Of course, in the cases of our masters and so on, it's also true, but they also had the same level of consciousness. But for him, it was a deliberate practice to be able to you know, have something like an inebriating element come into your body and then have your willpower be stronger than the actual physiology of that happening. You can see how that would be so attractive. You know, our path is the path of drinking. We drink until we don't get drunk anymore. You know, it might take us a decade or 20 or 30 years, but we'll just keep doing it until we're able to succeed at it, you know. And we have sex until we're detached from sex. You know, it sounds like a good idea, but it's just a little bit too self-justifying. But for the rest of us, what tends to happen is even if we have a desire to overcome um, sensual feelings or inappropriate sensual feelings or overindulging uh, sensual feelings, sexuality is always the prime example. Or for to attach to food or to intoxicants or um, to unkind words, to a, a, a tendency to be angry. Maybe we're very covetous of other people's material things. Maybe we have a passion for luxury. Maybe we like to have power over other people. You know, just all kinds of uh, faults that we could lay out there. And it's, it's always a great dilemma for the devotee when he realizes that he genuinely wants to and probably will do something that he knows he shouldn't. And it's not a shouldn't, you know, because God will curse you. It's a shouldn't because I know that my happiness does not really lie in this direction. I mean, how many of us, you know, every day, in one way or another, you know, don't quite live up to what we imagined might be possible for that day. It's something that we all have to deal with, don't we? And I've often talked in these classes because it's such an important aspect of the whole path. You know, how how useless it is to torture ourselves with a sense of shame or guilt over that. Because it's just what's going to happen. But at the same time, the teaching is very clear. And we can't just pretend that it isn't clear. You know that there, there are... Uh, the, the repetition of ego-affirming, material body-affirming actions, the repetition of a desire for inebriation, or for lower consciousness, or, or for um, self-aggrandizement in any way, the, the more we act out those desires, the more they imprint upon our chakras, and the, the deeper the hole we dig for ourselves that we're eventually going to have to get out of. But just knowing that doesn't necessarily in itself free us of either the desire or the inability to resist that desire. So Tantra is the science that says, okay, at all times, no matter what you're doing, instead of thinking about what you ought to do, just create a spectrum within your actual behavior in which one part of you resists. The way um, Swamiji puts it, you know, you can at least resist mentally. You can never fully accept. You, you, a part of you can always stand back And observe that this is happening, but but hold back a little bit of your commitment to it. Just watch what you're doing, but always resist a little bit mentally. Even if the, uh, the, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, just hold that little piece outside. Because several things happen when we do that. One of the solid things that happens is there's always then an observer that's sort of asking yourself, how much am I really enjoying this? And even if the answer is whoopee a great deal, there's still somebody asking the question. And if the answer is whoopee a great deal, then we just have to sort of quietly say, well, this is the kind of karma that's at least rust on the mirror, if not the baby in the womb, meaning that it's going to take some elbow grease to get the rust off the mirror, or it's going to take some just waiting it out until the baby's ready to come out of the womb. This is not karma that I'm just going to be able to get rid of just by puffing it away. I have known so many devotees over the years in many countries and many stages of development. The shiningest devotees have always been those who were at peace with themselves. I mean, the nicest, it's lovely to be a shining devotee who's at peace with yourself because you have nothing to worry about. And I I know some of those as well. But even those who have limitations in their ability to live up to the highest that they know, that simple ability just to to accept without embarrassment that these are the things I'm working on. I have always observed that such people make much faster progress than you think they would, given their faults, because all they have is the fault. They don't also have all those layers of shame and guilt over it. And so all of us need in our arsenal somewhere this understanding that this is a very valid spiritual practice. That if I find myself where I don't want to be, then I become the observer of that experience and I always hold a little piece of my mind just a little bit apart to just see where is this going, where is this going to take me, you know, how am I going to get there, and what will I do afterwards. I remember, well, this was sort of a similar way, but when I was... uh, uh, caught up once in a, a flow of energy that I didn't really want to indulge in. I used to have to make this deal with God every morning, you know, that I had to pray for protection because I was perfectly conscious of the fact that I had no willpower to resist and that the only way I would be able to resist um, these particular actions was if I was given no opportunity. No, and but even when given opportunity, what we have to keep in mind always, is that God never deserts us. And that's part also of what this practice is about. That there's no place you can go, you know, that where you're going to be outside of your relationship with God. And if we actually imagine even that our own actions could put us outside that relationship, that's the bigger fault. Whatever we're doing is really less of an obstacle to our spiritual growth than the belief that that action puts us outside of our relationship with God. And this is sort of what the observer keeps in mind for us. Oh, look, here's, here's where we're going. Swami talks about it by saying also that um, when wherever you go, whatever you do, always take Divine Mother with you, is how he puts it. He said, don't think that she doesn't want to be. She's with you anyway. So it just becomes a question of whether or not we're open enough to to uh, to be able to recognize that it, that's what's happening. <coughs> Swamiji also talks about the the false idea, which is a really important uh, correction also to make, which is the the thought that. We can get rid of desires by expressing them. I remember there was a man once who had a desire to do something or another and he was trying to persuade Swami that it would be good for him spiritually to do it. Swamiji was having none of it. And finally the man said, But sir, I'm so restless, I'll never have any peace unless I uh, fulfill this desire. And Swamiji looked at him and he said, You have millions of desires if you think that you're going to get free of free of them by fulfilling them you can start now and you will never finish is what he said in response and in fact the man followed his desire and just completely spun off the path now part of what we have to accept is that the, especially in terms of negative emotions and thoughts like that there there is this idea this sort of psychological idea these days that if we can just give vent to these feelings, that somehow then they'll cease to torment us. There's the, the the only shred of truth in that, and it is it is a valid truth, is that we can't deny, we can't lie to ourselves about what we really feel. Um, and it, it never it never serves our cause to be dishonest. And I know I, this is something that I myself had a great deal of difficulty with in my first years on the spiritual path. And I, I, I was telling you this story in some context. Maybe it was a Sunday service. But when uh, Swamiji was... Oh, yes. It was about work. I, I think it was a service or something. Anyway. Um, but I had a job that I couldn't do. And Swamiji wanted to train me to be able to do the job but in order for him to train to me, me, I had to admit that I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have the nerve to admit that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I completely blocked his ability to help me, basically. And I was, and so he kept putting pressure on me. He kept um, demanding more and more of me, knowing that I wasn't able to, to produce even the little bit he'd already asked. And he kept piling. You know request upon request, and I kept saying yes to him with a greater and greater sense of of helplessness because I just didn't have any idea even where to begin it was it was comical, except that it, only in retrospect in the, in the middle it was not comical um this was in like the early seventies my in my twenties and uh, finally, I just became so dissonant within myself and with him that it, it sort of exploded and he we had a, a sort of a confrontation and he said to me, you know, you're, you have such an idea in your mind, words to this effect, you have such an idea in your mind, speaking to me, of how a disciple is supposed to behave, that you just keep like trying to behave that way without ever actually, um, you know, embracing the genuine attitudes, you just try to embrace the behavior. And then is when he said to me, which was the the key point to it all, he said, you never fooled me. You just put on this sort of, yes, I'll do whatever you want, of course, sir, I'd be very happy to do it. But there was nothing, there was nothing behind it. Because I was totally unable to deal with all the fear and uh, anxiety and lack of skill and... um, self, the recognition of incompetence, all the different things that people are troubled by, especially when they're young, you know. I couldn't deal with any of those, so I just decided to behave in a certain way that looked good. And I just somehow thought I could get away with that, you know. And if I hadn't been in uh, the relationship with him that I was in, who knows what might have happened. Although what I was saying, I've noticed that Ananda has a self-correcting element to it. I have observed that anyone who comes to Ananda and really immerses themselves in it. I mean, you can keep your distance, but if you really immerse yourself in it, and you're really there because you're hiding from some dimension of yourself that you hope never to have to confront, sooner or later it just hits you in the eye. I've never really seen anybody get away with it. It's just like there's a, what I call a magnetic honesty. That if you're really sincere on the spiritual path, sooner or later it will correct itself. And of course, the longer something is suppressed, the messier it gets when it finally breaks out. Um, So it's not a really very valid technique. But sooner or later it all self-corrects. So I was self-corrected somewhat earlier. But what I realized as soon as Swami said that to me, first of all, was it's a colossal waste of energy to try to pretend to be something we're not. And of course, at the same time, one doesn't want to just, as we're reading here, just give free rein to any wacko um, negative idea that comes through you on the basis of being honest. But we ha- also have to allow ourselves to communicate inwardly, you know, what, who I am and what I actually feel. You know, the first step on to, to, to being really divinely inspired is to be somewhat inwardly directed. Um, too many people in the world, all their values come from outside them. They don't really even have a sense of their own self. And sometimes a kind of self-centered, selfish self-awareness is the first step. Um, people often say this to me if if they have been, um, especially adult children of alcoholics, especially when we talk too much about selflessness and transcending the self and thinking about others. I will often have people come to me afterwards and say, I've fought so hard to have a self, I'm not going to let anybody take it away from me. And yes, that's right. Because you have to have a certain level of psychological integration and egoic health. You have to own your own ego before you can give it away. If you've, if you've given your ego away to some abusive parent or person in your life, you don't even own it enough to give it to God. You have to first own it for yourself. You have to first know who I am and what I feel and why I feel this way. Then we can start making value judgments about what of those attitudes really represent my superconscious self and which of them are ones that I really deeply and, and, and wholeheartedly want to leave behind. But if we're only willing to see ourselves in this positive light, then it gets very confusing. Now, the only way you can actually also really just sort of see those realities is you have to have a bigger picture into which they can be absorbed. This is a question people also raise when, they're, when they've been brought up through the AA programs where you're schooled to n- never allow yourself. You, you always have to say, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. You're not allowed to ever say, I used to be. Now, spiritually speaking, you can transcend anything. So there is a point in which I used to be that, but I'm not anymore. But I I definitely and deeply respect why the AA program is so emphatic on that one point, because they specialize in this one particular difficulty, and they recognize that most of the time when people want to reject the label, they have a nefarious purpose in doing so. But at the same time, what we have to understand is any delusion we have does not really define us. And this is the way in which we are able to just see ourselves exactly as we are and not feel in any way crushed by that. I mean, the reason we hide from those truths is because it doesn't give us hope to think of ourselves that way. You know, when I was in my 20s, if I had... I mean, I was so nervous about competency. It was just the biggest nervousness I had that I just, I couldn't bring my mind to any kind of a clear focus about how I really functioned in the world. I had, I was fired from so many jobs. <laughs> Transferred. People were moved around a lot. I said I was either, I either proved myself incompetent so quickly or I was a quick study. I'm not really sure, but I got moved around so many times, just shifted from here to there, from here to there. Um, and I never really did very well at anything. I mean, I always added good energy. I'm not, I'm a, I'm a kind of, you know, I'm a peppy person and I can make things a little more cheerful in certain ways. But I never really could do much. And, uh, uh, but my anxiety to look at that took, took me so long to be able to come to that because I had to, I had to also build first a really deep understanding of how much god loves me. You see, cuz that's the only that's the only balancing factor. There is no balancing factor of yes, I am competent. Oh, yes, I am good. Yes, I am virtuous. If if all we're doing is trying to build our sense of self-worth off of all these empirical proofs of our self-worth. You see, we're always vulnerable because there's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be a moment when it doesn't quite come out right. The karmic balance is just going to shift. You know, there it is true that we reach a certain point of skill where we have a, an ability to, mag, to magnetize things, to be effective in the world, to be in tune with intuition. But it's, it, it's always going to be, karma always is going to play a part in it. And Master tells us the extremely disconcerting fact that In the end, all our successes and all our failures have to balance out to zero. And so we just don't know whether we're going to, you know, whether this is the round in which everything's going to come out good. You know, Swami Kriyananda's life is a tremendous success, but God knows he's had his ups and downs. (laughs) You know, not everything always works out. It just doesn't. It's the way life, life is like that. The only level on which we can always feel secure is in our inner relationship with the spirit and our sense of sincere desire to, to live up to the divine promise that's within us. And we, we, we have to begin to train ourselves in all circumstances to always look, look to that for our sense of well-being and our sense of security. Even if we're wildly successful at what we do, you know, we, we have to always the part of the tantric practice is not just it's when we're confronted with anything you know that that's pulling us out of our divine center if we if we're at all susceptible to it we have to hold a little part of us just aloof from this and great success in life is one of those things that just really draws us out oh look i did that really well oh look these people are really uh, it's it full of praise for me. Oh, look at all these people looking at me so respectfully and so adoringly. Oh, look at all the wonderful complimentary letters I got. You know, as soon as the the consciousness moves out into that as the reason for our self worth, we've immediately set in motion a pendulum swing. It's not as if we shouldn't strive for that kind of success and excellence, as we talked about it in the Gita class it's necessary for us to overcome tamo and rajo guna. And one of the ways in which we overcome those dis- more dissonant gunas is that we, ha- we must consistently work hard and effectively and in tune until we can manifest whatever, whatever creative ideas are planted in us. So excellence is a, is a profound part of the spiritual path because the, if we're not achieving excellence... It's because we've always allowed tamoguna or rajoguna to cloud our understanding. So there is a very profound spiritual reason for excellence. But if we then allow our self-worth to be defined by anything other than the, the, our attunement with spirit and we can say, oh look, look at this wonderful thing that happened. Isn't that marvelous? Or well, that one really didn't come out very well, did it? But always holding that inward peace, then we don't have, we don't become so agitated when these layers are peeled away and we begin to see this peculiar maya misunderstandings that we have within us that often lead us into the daffiest decisions. I know I've quoted to you, Swamiji said to me once when I put together this whole project, and my fundamental reason to put for, for doing the project, one of, my, one of my two prominent impulses was that someone else had not succeeded quite so well and I thought that I could do it a lot better. And that was just sort of there somewhere in the background. Even though I worked hard for a selfless cause, for this and this. And it just really fizzled really, really badly. And you sort of inexplicably fell apart because of my wrong attitude at the center of it. And that was when Swami said to me, whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> that was just what he said. Because my, my, my first decisions in that project were all off. And so all the work I did afterwards was wrong. It was ill-conceived from the beginning. And I always think of that. Whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. But the ego does get involved. And I've seen myself many, many times since then. Many, many times. I'll just do something that just seemed like such a good idea. But at a certain point I'll realize that the energy was wrong from the start because I was putting my self-worth on the line and not thinking first in terms of how can I live in tune with the spirit and then how can I be an instrument of that spirit? Does that make sense? Now... All of this having to do with what we were saying at the beginning, which is the Tantra Yoga is the practice of always holding a little bit of mental detachment, always standing back a little bit no matter what happens, having it be a constant practice, whether it's joy or sorrow, whether it's success or failure, whether it's the bliss of all your desires being fulfilled or the despair of all of them being denied. It's, all, it's realizing that life is a series of ups and downs and that... All of these different waves, the upward and the downward waves, are all given to us just to strengthen our capacity to remain right where we are at the center of truth. And that's all that's being asked of us. I was saying, whenever I find that I'm doing something because in some way I'm trying to prove an egoic related point, it always... My judgment is very poor. Our judgments are always poor. And then... When I realize that the only thing I'm supposed to be doing is to live in tune with the Spirit and then to share and express that in whatever way is possible, you may be doing exactly the same thing, but your judgment will be more sound because it won't be tainted. And then when it is tainted, as we were saying, the practice of Tantra oh, you don't, the practice of Tantra is just that holding oneself back just a little bit. You know, it's an odd practice because people don't really understand why it really is a good idea. We, we think that just sort of this letting ourselves go is really the way to enjoy ourselves the most. I, because I don't drink and I haven't, haven't hadn't had a drink, I was, uh, I was driving home from Ananda village really late one night and I don't know what highway I was on but it was like two in the morning and the road was really bumpy and I was the only one on it so I was kind of moving like this looking for the smoother part and the police officer pulls me over, and, and he starts asking me, ma'am, starts asking me questions, you know, like, like, the the week is it, stuff like that. And I'm like, I can't figure out what in the heck is going on, it's what he's doing. And finally, I realized that I had, oh, you think I haven't had a drink since 1967? And he looked so puzzled, and I said, you probably weren't even born. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I said, I'm. But I'm so out of that scene, for drinking. And what you see is that the uh, release of inhibitions and this sort of expectation they can enjoy things more by going at it in a more frenzied manner. You know, you just see this sort of increase in frenzy often. Louder talking, laughing more, pushing like this. And when you're in the habit of living more centered, when you see people or people dancing like that, you know, just... Um, being very uh, un- 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 uncentered, it, it far from looking like they're having fun. They look to you like they're losing their minds, which of course they are. And until you actually really catch that for yourself, until until one lives enough out of free by all of that swinging of the drugs to sub things that can really grip your consciousness to making money, to having power over people. These are not things you can just sort of brush aside. Not at all. And so you, ha- you have to be able to realize that there is a spiritual practice to help you deal with it. That it is not outside your spiritual life. That's entirely, that's entirely what I was trying to say. Our failures are not outside our spiritual life. Our failures are the the center of our spiritual life because that's the mountain we're walking up and and they're they're right at the center of god's embracing us it's it's such, it's an extraordinary freeing realization to understand that uh, well master there's so many phrases that swami has quoted from master that you hear them and hear them and finally one day you understand what it means one of them is God doesn't mind your faults. He only minds your indifference. We think God minds our faults. He doesn't mind our faults at all. He minds what, 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 what disturbs God, if you could say such a thing, is that when we ourselves uh, are indifferent to whether or not God is in our life, whether we're indifferent to our own aspirations, whether we turn our backs on our own aspirations, Merely to fail to live up to them is just the inevitable result of maya. But if we're indifferent to that failure, indifferent to the desire to grow closer to God, then there's nothing he can do for us. And that's, that's the sad. That's where God weeps for us. Um, so one side of it, as I was saying, is the degree to which we behave wrongly. And the other side of the, the practice is just to be able to be calmly and completely with whoever we actually are and then hold a little bit aside and see it from God's point of view. You know, when you, when you realize how many lifetimes we live and how we have to go through everything before we're freed, it's just really not shocking. And God made it all. He's no, he's no stranger to it. Somebody, somebody said to Master once, does God know sin or something like that? I think Master said he would have to be awfully stupid not to. You know, it's just the way we are. It's such a small thing compared to our spiritual freedom. Do you have any questions or thoughts on that side of it, anyone? Okay. Um, during the break, um, during the break there was a question raised about this uh, section toward the end of the Tantra chapter about the relationship of the upward and downward flowing energy in the spine and the breath and the reactive process. Without going through the whole thing, the, the essential point that Swamiji is making here is that the, the, um, the, uh, the breathing process is very closely, the in, in and outflow of breath is very closely related to our state of consciousness. And this is a fundamental premise of meditation practice that the It's a very close relationship between consciousness and breath. And that's the basis of all the breathing exercises that you learn in yoga practice is because if you gain mastery over the breath, by gaining mastery over the breath, you're actually going to gain mastery over your consciousness. Um, The breath is the link between your, your consciousness and your outward expression of it. And so Swamiji gives us examples about how when something happens that, excites us, we tend to inhale and we get very up that way and energy literally rises up the spine. And, but that inhalation and that reaction tends also to cause the energy that is raised to go out in an outward way in response to what we're relating to. When um, sensual desires or, or egoic desires um, capture us, it tends to stimulate the chakras that relate to those experiences and it stimulates them in a way that again causes the energy to go outward. So one of the things that we're trying to work with through the, the, the practice of Tantra is to gain mastery over that reactive process. And one of the things that we learn to do is by, by gaining mastery over the in and outflow of the breath, and this is something that we practice by, specifically by breathing exercises, by meditation practices, we were just talking about hatha yoga practices, all these different ways, energization exercises, in which we consciously control the upward and downward flow of energy in the spine, either directly through the breath or by more subtle means, it, it, it gets us in the habit of having conscious control over where, how that energy flows, keeping it even and steady and non-reactive. And that practice then serves us well whenever something happens that would cause us to react. If we can very quickly re- retreat to center and become conscious of a steady and even upward, downward flow of energy that is unrelated to whatever external stimuli, positive or negative, it allows us to remain more centered in the midst of whatever happens. And that, again, that doesn't mean that you're not feeling joy is that you're allowing whatever joy you're feeling to be interiorized rather than drawn out of you and attached to whatever situation is going on around you. You, you strengthen the inner flow, you interiorize the inner flow, and then gradually you can keep that flow of energy um, uplifted. And this is, of course, our practice of Kriya, is a very specific way of, of working with that energy all the time. By the practice of Kriya, we get into that habit you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing to watch yourself when you're suddenly startled. Do you scream? You know, if, if you hurt your hand, you know, how, how calm do you remain at the sudden sight that something has happened? You know, does one inadvertently curse? Um, do you yell or do just things happen and they just happen? And it's, it's always a nice sign when you see that something happened and it just happened. You know, you dropped a dish and it just smashed all over the floor and you just step back. You know, you don't go into a state of ex- ex- exaggerated and excited reaction or response to it. Or somebody gives you very good news. Does it immediately draw your energy out? You know, you, uh, the people on the television shows and in the commercials, you know, anything that happens, it's, it's, it's actually amazing to watch sometimes if you ever are somewhere or watch it yourself. You see something exciting happens and people scream and jump up and down or throw themselves on the floor or wave their arms about. And they're just trying um, to manufacture a response. And, it, and because they don't know how to interiorize that energy where it really can expand to infinity, it has to just come out through the body in all these different ways. And when you see it in these very exaggerated ways, Then you begin to recognize the sort of the greater power and the greater dignity of just holding it inside. And it's far from not feeling it. In fact, you're feeling it so much more deeply and so much more sensitively than if all of that energy is just dissipated and will immediately set in motion a pendulum swing. You know? So it's very, um, it's a very important practice. Everything eventually on the spiritual path ties together all the little bits and pieces that we learn, every little bit and piece, you finally begin to see how the whole thing begins to come together in one, you know, very powerful movement. And all of the different elements come together. You know, Kriya is the, really the fundamental. Because the fundamental Kriya is that we gain mastery over the up and down flow of energy in the spine. And we, we, we neutralize the vortices of karma in the chakras. And when that happens, you see, then we start living our lives as we were really intended to live them. We're no longer living them in this endless pendulum swing of, swing of maya. It all comes down to Kriya, which is why Lahiri Mahashaya recommended Kriya for every problem, which is why, and it is true to say, don't worry about anything, just meditate. Because if you do just meditate, especially if you do Kriya, uh, as Master taught it, <laughs> You know, do it. In other words, do it with real dynamic energy. Then gradually, uh, everything just emanates from this calm up and down flow, and all of the ups and downs of life smooth out, like Master described it. You know, instead of being a wave that's always stormy on the ocean, you begin to live closer to the to the whole ocean, and your your base of operation spreads out to the whole sea. It's it's really. Um, thrilling in the end. All right. The next chapter that Swamiji talked about is this beautiful chapter about Divine Mother. And uh, what I so love about Swamiji in every way that he teaches is that he always takes whatever he teaches and he tries to bring it down to a place where anybody can relate to it from their own experience. And that's a really, when you stand back and think about it, that's a really remarkable approach to spirituality. Because so much of spirituality is some authority is telling you, you know, when you die, this is where you'll go, if you do these things, that will happen to you, the priest will absolve you, you do this ritual. And there's very little effort made to actually have your understanding of the higher dimension be built on your actual experience of this world. And so Swamiji talks to us at great length here about um, needing to bring our idea of the infinite down to something that we can both understand and that awakens the feelings of the heart. He talks too about the tremendous importance about engaging our feelings in everything that we do. I mean, if you think about it, the things that really capture us, that that make us spontaneously willing to engage, is when then there's some feeling quality that's attractive to us, isn't it? If a job is just a dull job, we we just we, we can hardly bring ourselves to do it. But if it's if it's creative, it's if it's uplifting to us, if it makes us happy to work on it, if we love the process, if we love the person we're doing it for, all of these different ways that our feeling gets engaged, then all of a sudden our energy will follow that. And so on the spiritual path, it's really fundamental, no matter how expanded and elevated the ideas may be, that we also have to find a way for the the heart to also get engaged. I mean, one of the profound characteristics of our spiritual path, when sometimes people ask me, you know, what makes Ananda what it is? Well, one of the answers is it's a very heart-oriented spiritual path. It has this amazing um, philosophical component. It has these brilliant explanations of things. It, it ha- it's very satisfying to intellectual questions. But what really characterizes it is that everything about it is designed to awaken the feelings of the heart. And that's why there's so much music. And that's why we make a a great effort at beauty. Um, Just to make everything not necessarily luxurious, but but attractive to look at, attractive to be part of. That's why Master has so many of those just dear and simple songs. So that it wasn't a question of complexity. It was just a question of something that would just go in and touch the, the, the inner core of our own feelings. Or his book, Whispers from Eternity, or metaphysical meditations, just these, these beautiful poetic words of deep longing. Because once we understand um, that this is about the fulfillment of our, of our true and deepest longings, then it's not a question of having to force yourself toward it. It's like nothing can keep you from going there. And that's what I was saying about Master saying, he doesn't mind our faults, what he minds is our indifference. And indifference sets in when the feelings of the heart are not engaged. So Swamiji is here, is making a very strong um, uh, plea for us to try to understand God in such a way that we want to be close. And so he he takes us through this uh, understanding of the purity and the beauty of mother love. And whether or not, he says, we were gifted ourselves to have had a dear and loving mother, which of course if one has had one, it's a lovely thing. I told the story at Sunday service not too long ago and I, then I wrote about it in a, a letter that I wrote again about an experience I had when I was seven, when I, I did something dishonest and was found out immediately and was just overcome with shame but also stupidly tried to pretend that I wasn't guilty at the same time. And what I remember is that my mother held me in her arms. And I know that, because I know my parents, I'm sure they also told me that lying is really not a good idea. I I both lied and stole something, which was really, really no-nos in my upbringing. But what I remember most profoundly about that was that my mother just held me in her lap and let me cry. And it's just, it's odd because that memory is more than, what is that? I'm 62. That's more than 55 years old. But it's just so vivid that in that moment of great despair, this person embraced me like that. You know, what does that represent? That represents just about everything that we want, isn't it? And it it was a pure and wonderful act of mother love. So... We extrapolate from either what we can imagine or what we know. And we, we use our imagination to, to conceive of an, of, a, of an infinite consciousness that is that personification of compassion. I love the way Jesus called it. Jesus called it the comforter. And he doesn't really explain the comforter very much in the Bible. But he says, I will send you the comforter. Yogananda explains it by saying it's the Aum vibration. And the Aum vibration is the feminine in the spirit. That's what we've talked about earlier in this book. The Aum vibration is really the Divine Mother. It's the aspect of the spirit that is right with us. The Aum is what we ourselves are made out of. We've been manifested from the from the infinite through the power of the Aum. And the Aum... It is us. It comes with us. And when we are conscious of that Aum vibration, we are conscious of our unity with spirit. And when we are conscious of our unity with spirit, we are comforted. Isn't that so? It's when we're, Because no matter what's happening in your life, if you feel the presence of spirit in the middle of it, All external circumstances become irrelevant. There was an extremely moving interview I saw, and I have no idea where it was or why. But it was a man who was captured in Vietnam and was subjected for... He was captured for several years and was subjected to that kind of just mind-numbing, torturous abuse that human beings inflict upon one another. And he was, he was telling the story himself, describing enough of the circumstances so that those of us listening to it could feel the horror of it. And he talked about how he was a man of faith, but he was pushed so far beyond his limits that he really didn't know if he could endure anymore. And he was being tortured by a Vietnamese person, a soldier, I presume, and with a, a, a kind of helpless despair that he had never reached before, he prayed for God to help him. And he said, and in that moment, this sense of grace descended upon him. And he was still being tortured, but it was a matter of complete indifference to him. Because the sense of grace just transcended everything. And he felt in that moment so much love for everyone and everything that he looked at the man who was torturing him and he just looked at him with this uh, wanting to give him something of what he was experiencing. And he said the man, whatever instrument of inflicting pain he was using, he just put it down. And he said he was never tortured again. But it was like... um, once we are really deeply in that spirit, nothing else can touch us. There's the story that um, Master uh, Dr. Lewis tells about being out on sea on a boat and a sudden storm coming up. And he thought the boat would sink and he just went deeply into the ohm vibration. And then he was rescued. Master, he came into his house and master telephoned from across the country. Well, Dr. Lewis, you came near to getting wet, didn't you? There's another interesting story about the ohm, which is from a completely other place. Tom Brown, is that his name? The man who's the naturalist who was raised as, like, an American Indian? Tracker. He tells this story. He, as a boy, was out in some wild lands in New Jersey that was there at that time. And he and his American Indian youth friend, who were trained by, I think, the boy's grandfather, the, there was one dangerous element in that whole area, and it was it was wild dogs. People had let their pets loose, and then they'd form these packs. And so they always had to be a, a little bit careful because of the wild dogs. And somehow or another, Tom was alone. I, all the details escaped me a little. But in any case, he became pursued by a pack of wild dogs, and they pursued him into a place where he was suddenly at the top of a hill and there was no way to get away. And he, he, he saw that he wasn't going to be able to get away. But the Indian had taught him how to go very deeply into the spirit. And I think he even had the sound of Om in his recollection. And so he, he just sat down and he went completely into that spiritual realm so much so that he was not conscious of what was going on around him and he sat there for a period of time he thought you know the dogs were going to get him and he didn't know what else to do so he did this and then after a period of time he came out of that and he was a tracker and he could read the tracks and he saw that the pack of dogs had his scent and they pursued him and then they were right in front of him and they lost the scent And he followed their tracks as they tried to find the scent and they went all around where he was sitting looking for his scent and they couldn't find it. And then they just wandered off. Isn't that astonishing? I mean, he just sort of ceased to be part of the natural world because he went so deeply into that. Now, that's the comforter. We can think of it as the Om. It's a lovely way to think of it. But if we personify it with something that our minds already understand and then just take the understanding we have and then gradually elevate it. And Swamiji also describes in here that what the world needs now more than anything else is a restoration of this spirit of Divine Mother, both as a way of understanding the divine and also as a way of each of us as individuals being an expression of that divine. You know, that's that, that universal mother love. There's no way out of the mess that we're in otherwise, honestly. You know, there's just so many forces that are completely out of control. There's a certain point when you have to essentially turn your back on a whole way of thinking and then just find a completely new solution. This is the superconscious solution, which is for many, many individuals within themselves to begin to attune to that divine mother force within, to begin to relate to the divine in terms of the divine mother, which is comforting, loving, compassionate, and then to be that instrument into this world. When uh, a a young man, a man named Karuna, who lived here many years ago, he did a program for children. He called it Say Yes to Life. It was an after-school program, a wonderful program. And he taught the children to be, he said, he, he commissioned them all to be in the secret service. And their job was to do secret service to people. They couldn't, tell people he, they couldn't tell people what they were doing, but they had to serve others secretly. And he called them all secret agents for Divine Mother. And they had to act on her behalf without telling anyone. And it was such a, you know, the children, of course, just loved it. And, they, and then they would come back and they would report back to, they could report to each other, but they couldn't tell anybody else what they were doing because they were secret agents. And I've always been so charmed by that thought. You know, let's all be secret agents for Divine Mother. Let us be the, the one, the bringer of the comforter. You know, so, so often in life we think we have to um, be an instrument of discipline for each other, we really rarely do. <laughs> You know, most people do not need to be disciplined because almost everyone knows exactly what they should do already. What we lack is the courage to do it. And what gives us courage to act is if somebody else has faith in us. I'm fortunate in my life to have a few, I have quite a few, but I mean I have a few who stand out in my mind as friends who have always been supportive of me no matter how badly I've behaved. And I began to appreciate what an extraordinary gift that is to really have people in your life who, who just believe in you, no matter how much you screw up. And that, and that they, they not only just say that, but they project to you this sense of, you can do it. In other words, they project motherly love. And so Swamiji really urges us to think this way. And This was Master's unique contribution. You know, Jesus brought it as far as the, from the judge to the father. But Master brought it all the way to the mother. And it, it, it's something very, very beneficial for our spiritual lives to really think about it. It's a very sophisticated concept. It's not at all sentimental. It's the, there's nothing more powerful than that kind of unconditional love. And to be able to both accept it for ourselves and to offer it to others is an act of great spiritual heroism. It's by no means a a small accomplishment. And it's just what's needed now. This is what the world is asking for. So the last chapter that I'll just mention briefly before we call it a night Swamiji is really wanting us to understand that merely because the heart of every spiritual path leads to the same place, we, we shouldn't all try to be the same. You know, I, when I... There's a Jewish uh, synagogue somewhere up on El Camino here now, and on the, they're, they're orthodox enough that on the Sabbath they all walk. And so on uh, Saturday mornings you'll see these people, and often the men are wearing yarmulkes and, or hats. and But there's always something a little odd about them when you see them because they don't carry anything. The women don't carry purses. The men don't carry briefcases. And they're walking. And you rarely see people doing that. And every time I see them, I feel so uplifted and so happy. And I, I, I imagine a world in which you saw the Jews walking to their temple and the Catholics processing with their crosses and the Hindus, you know, playing their bells and carrying their Durga through the street and the Jains with their masks. I mean, I could just, it would be such a wonderful world, wouldn't it? If people were just um, celebrating together, you know, and each one recognizing that just like we all have different faces and different families, there's just different ways of, of climbing the mountain and getting to the same goal and the way Swami writes about it, to understand that the intention is all the same and then the differences are just something to celebrate. But not, um, and, and we've, we've come way past this in this book, to understand that you, you can't reconcile it just on the basis of that. I mean, the the Jews are not comfortable with the picture of, of Christ up here and, you know, the Hindus are probably not that comfortable with Christ up here either. And the, uh, everybody has all these different thoughts in different places, but, it matters so little if everybody's action is taking us more into the heart of compassion and love and expanded awareness and a greater ability to live up to that infinite promise within us. You know, unity and diversity is the phrase that Swami uses, which is a beautiful phrase. We, we also have a, a, the possibility in this age, and we'll see how close we come to it, where people will really begin to understand that, that it'll be the vibrations behind things that will matter more than the forms. Right now, people are still trying to create unity by this excessive respect for one another. And in a previous class, we talked about this by sort of saying, well, all paths are true, therefore I'll follow all paths and it'll all be the same, which just ends up with your being just drowning in the middle with your foot in so many boats, you just fall into the water. It is necessary. To make a deep commitment and to follow it with power. But we can also be just so delighted when we see other people who are following their paths with power, if we have the uh, sophistication which this book gives us to understand, as he says it again and again, that the way of awakening. Each one is just a way of awakening. And when we awaken, we awaken all to the same reality. And if the paths, pathways of belief vary, it doesn't make any difference because it's the way of awakening that brings us together. This is where Master said, self-realization has come to unite all religions. And Swamiji said, that doesn't mean that it's, as he puts it, it's the super-Catholic Church of the Dwapara Yuga. It means that the principles of self-realization will finally allow people to recognize the unity and diversity. Because once we see that all practices are designed to interiorize your consciousness, to lift your consciousness, to open your heart in compassion and love, then it really won't make any difference how we get there. We'll just each follow our own way and celebrate the differences between us instead of what we're doing now. Um, So this whole book, not only because it brings East and West together, but because by describing the essential truths of this one path, Swamiji is giving us a way to really, in time, bring about the kind of unity I think that the world is seeking in these days. So that's my contribution on this book.